Morning. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for you have revealed yourself to us in your word. We thank you for the richness of Old Testament narratives, how they not only teach us about historical events and people, but also point us so clearly to your Son. So we ask that you would give us eyes to see the glories of Jesus and the wonders of his gospel in this text, uh, that our hearts would be freshly captivated this morning by what you've done for sinners like us. We pray that you would not allow us to be distracted uh, by outside noises or by the temperature of the room or by wandering thoughts. Uh, Grant to us, Lord, a a hunger and a thirst that can only be satisfied by your word. We ask all this in Jesus' name for your glory. Amen. Please take out your Bibles and turn to the book of 2 Samuel. We continue this morning in our study through the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel, and today we come to chapter 10. Let's start by reading the chapter in its entirety. So 2 Samuel chapter 10, this is the word that God has for you this morning. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanan, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan, their lord, Do you think, because David has sent comforters to you, that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. When it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David... The Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Maacah with 1,000 men, and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate, and the Syrians of Zobah and Rehob and the men of Tob and Maacah were by themselves in the open country. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage, and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God, and may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. When the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together. And Hadadezer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. 
They came to Helam with Shobak, the commander of the army of Hadadezer at their head. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel. And David killed of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen and wounded Shobak, the commander of their army, so that he died there. When all the kings who were servants of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. This is the word of the Lord. So 2 Samuel chapter 10, uh, an interesting and somewhat bizarre story. Uh, The chapter starts with uh, this really strange episode of diplomacy and ends with David and Israel defeating the Ammonites and the Syrians, like a coalition of them in battle. And so even if it's not one of the better known stories, chapters of 2 Samuel, uh, it's at least got some interesting history. But is there more to this chapter than just some interesting history? Are there things that we can learn from this chapter about God and how we as Christians might live for his glory? Well, 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 answers that question for us because it says that all scripture, and all scripture certainly includes 2 Samuel chapter 10, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. But in order for the text to serve us in that way, we need to know what's going on here. Right? We need to make sure we've got the story straight. And so let's start by just going through the narrative, making sure we understand what's going on. And we're going to do that by using a, a simple three-point outline to guide us. So point number one, if you're taking notes, is the shave. Point number two is the brave. And point number three is the save. You're going to remember it. That's the thing. The shave, the brave, and the save. Let's start with point number one, the shave. Uh, It might seem at first glance, like our chapter this morning, 2 Samuel chapter 10, is just completely unrelated to our previous chapter from last week, 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9, you'll remember, is about David showing kindness to Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son. And we noted that it's an unexpected kindness because of everything that David went through with regards to Saul's family, And also it's an unexpected kindness because of the common practice back then of eliminating any potential rivals to the throne. But David extends kindness to Mephibosheth for the sake of the covenant that he made with Jonathan. The promise that he made two decades earlier that he would show steadfast love to Jonathan's family. Well, he does that by not only sparing Mephibosheth's life and restoring his inheritance... But he even gives him a permanent seat at the king's table to dine with the king always as if he were one of David's sons. That's 2 Samuel chapter 9. Now 2 Samuel chapter 10 is about wars and battles and skirmishes with the Syrians and the Ammonites. And so again, at first glance, these chapters seem entirely disconnected. But that's because well, the ESV kind of drops the ball here. You see in verse 2 where David says, I will deal loyally with Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. 
You know what the Hebrew word there is that's translated deal loyally? It's chesed. It's that word we talked about a lot last week, referring to steadfast covenant love and kindness. There's steadfast love and kindness that reflects the steadfast love and kindness that God shows to his people. But that steadfast love and kindness that David showed to Mephibosheth, well, that same exact Hebrew word that's translated three times as kindness in chapter 9, well, the ESV here in chapter 10 translates it deal loyally. Other modern, modern translations, you may have one in front of you like the NASB or the NIV or the CSB, I think they do a better job here because they translate chesed consistently across the two chapters as kindness. Now, I kind of get, I kind of get why the ESV translators did that because, well, we're, we're talking about heads of state here, right? We're not talking about two best friends like David and Jonathan. And so if we were only looking at chapter 10, like we were only concerned with 2 Samuel chapter 10, well, maybe deal loyally. It kind of works in the context. But you can see how that translation choice completely obscures what should be a pretty clear connection between these two chapters. Because in Second Samuel chapter 9, that begins with David asking, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And chapter 10 begins with David saying, I will show kindness, chesed, same word as chapter 9, to Hanan for Nahash's father's sake. You see that? Both chapters begin with King David desiring to show steadfast love, chesed, to a son for the sake of his father. Now last week, well, we could go back to the book of 1 Samuel and we could get the entire backstory on the covenant between David and Jonathan. Like, these are the specific promises that they made to each other that David is now fulfilling to Mephibosheth. We don't have that luxury here with David and Nahash. And to be quite honest, uh, knowing what we know about Nahash, like, it's kind of strange that David would even have this relationship of kindness with him in the first place. Because what do we know about Nahash? Well, 1 Samuel chapter 11 tells us that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, he once besieged the town of Jabesh-Gilead, the Israelite town of Jabesh-Gilead. And that attack is probably most notable for its cruelty. He basically tells them, the only way that I'm going to allow you to surrender, the only way I'm not going to destroy all of you, is if I get to gouge out all of your right eyes. Like, that's the kind of guy you want to be friends with, right? The, the, the crazy eye-gouge guy. It's not entirely clear why David would want that relationship of kindness with a guy like that. Now maybe, this is one possibility, and maybe you'll remember that that siege ends with Saul saving the people of Jabesh-Gilead and defeating Nahash. And so maybe Nahash, because Saul was his enemy, well, he helps out David because he sees that David is also Saul's enemy. Kind of like the enemy of or the friend of my... The enemy of my enemy is my friend. There it is. Or maybe a, a better way to explain this is that Mets fans and Red Sox fans are friends because of our mutual hatred for the Yankees. In the same way, Nahash and David, perhaps they got along because Saul was against them both. That's one possibility. It's also possible that Nahash was truly sorry for what he did. 
And sometime after 1 Samuel 11, he makes peace with Israel during David's reign. That's another possibility. Maybe there's some other backstory entirely. We don't know, right? It's all conjecture. What we do know for sure, look at David's own words in verse 2. Again, words that are meant to tie us back to what we read with Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel chapter 9. What we do know for sure is that Nahash dealt loyally with David. That is, Nahash showed some form of kindness or steadfast love or chesed to David. That doesn't necessarily mean that they were best friends like David and Jonathan. It doesn't necessarily mean that there was an explicit covenant or treaty between the two of them. Maybe there were. But what it does tell us was that there was some relationship between the two sovereigns in which some kind of kindness or loyalty was the expectation. And so upon Nahash's death, as a fulfillment of that expectation of kindness, David sends his servants to Ammon. That would have been northeast of the land of the Israelites, across the Jordan River. Don't think of just like lowly slaves being sent here. Think of diplomats or kind of official state envoys or whatever you want to call them. These are important people who are being sent to offer their condolences to Hanan in an act of kindness. But that's basically where the similarities between chapter 9 and chapter 10 end. Because you'll remember in chapter 9, Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, he humbly and gratefully accepts and receives the kindness that David seeks to show him for his father, Jonathan's sake. But Hanan, son of Nahash, now we're in chapter 10, well, in response to the kindness that David seeks to show him for his father's sake, well, he completely rejects it. And that rejection is, at least in part, because of the advice that he gets from the princes of the Ammonites. Those would be his court advisors or his royal officials. Look at verse 3. Do you think... Because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father. The translation, David's chesed is is not genuine. Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and spy it out and overthrow it? The translation, not only is David's chesed not genuine, it's actually a front for his evil motives. Talk about those who call evil good and good evil. There's a a great example. David tries to show kindness. And how is that received? Well, in return, he is accused of treachery and betrayal. And so the chesed that Mephibosheth was so eager and joyful to accept, Hanan is quick to foolishly reject. And not just at face value, but as something with sinister underlying intentions. And as if that weren't bad enough, now look at how the foolishness of Hanan goes even further. Because Hanan is not just content to send those dignitaries home. He goes much, much further than that. Before sending them away, he shaves off half the beard of each man and he cuts the garment at the hips. Point number one, the shave. Now, when it says that he shaved off half of the beard of each man, uh, that does not mean that the beards were, like, trimmed to half length. It means that the facial hair was removed entirely 
off of one side of their face. And so, for example, the, the right side of your face has a full-grown beard and the left side of your face is cleanly shaven. That would obviously look ridiculous, kind of like a two-faced from Batman kind of thing. It would just look terrible. But back in that culture, this was about a lot more than just looking ridiculous. You see, back then, in that culture, a man's beard was a really, really big deal. The law, Leviticus 19, verse 27, prohibited men from marring the edge of their beard. The beard was viewed as a symbol and a badge of honor, so much so that men would even swear by their beard and they would pledge their beard for things. All that to say, one of the most insulting, degrading, disrespectful things you could do to a man back then was to desecrate his beard. One commentator wrote, many men in that culture would rather die than have their beard shaved off. Maybe uh, the only thing worse than having your beard entirely shaved off would be to have exactly half of it shaved off. And on top of that, like as if that were not insulting and degrading enough, Hanan also cuts their garments at the hips. Basically, he sends them home half naked. And we don't need much in terms of cultural background to see why that would be insulting and degrading and disrespectful. And so as you read this, right, you've got to see this as more than just like a mean joke or, or taking some like diplomat hazing a little bit too far. To send these men home with half a beard and half naked, this would have been the most insulting, uh, degrading, disrespectful way that these men could have been treated and to insult King David's ambassadors in that way is basically to insult King David in that way. It's kind of like what Jesus said to his disciples. The one who rejects you, rejects me. Well, by humiliating his envoys, Hanan was humiliating David. So this act by Hanan is nothing short of a casus belli. Now that is not to be confused with Cassander's stomach, that would be Cass's belly. And that is also not to be confused with the two Santa Maria boys, that would be Cass and Relly. No, this is a Cassus belly, right? An act of war. It's a provocation of war. It's like Pearl Harbor, an intentional act by the Ammonites to provoke David and Israel to war. How do we know that? Well, look at verse 6. At this point, David hasn't taken any military action yet. All he's done is he has told his envoys that they may stay at Jericho. Jericho would have been on the road back to Jerusalem. Stay there so you don't have to show your face in the capital city in all of your shame. Just stay there till your beards grow back. David hasn't done anything yet. But look what the Ammonites do. They know they've become a stench to David. They know that their their actions are having the intended effect on David. And so they go and preemptively call for military help. They hire the Syrians of Beth Rehob and Zobah and the men of Mekah and the men of Tob. The Ammonites are ready to fight. But that's exactly what they wanted. So verse 7, David gives them exactly what they want. He sends Joab and his men out to battle. But Hanan, you've got to be careful what you wish for. You come at the king, you best not miss. 
Hanan's writing checks here that he's not going to be able to cash. Point number one, the shave. And that brings us to point number two, the brave. We get up in verse eight. So you'll remember you've got the Ammonites and then the Ammonites hired the Syrians. And so they're joining forces against Israel. You've got the Ammonites kind of in their formation at the entrance of the gate, probably referring to the city of Rabbah. That would have been their capital city. And the Syrians, they're in this separate area out in the open country, not too far away. But as Joab leads his army towards Ammon, towards Rabbah, to fight the Ammonites, he realizes that he is now surrounded. You've got the Ammonites in front of you, and you've got the Syrians behind you. If military history has taught us anything, just think about World War II, what uh, the Germans found themselves in when they attacked the Soviet Union, right? You never want to fight a two-front war, but that's exactly what Joab finds himself doing here, not by his own choice. So Joab, skillful military tactician that he is, well, he quickly comes up with a plan. He takes for himself the best and most skilled and specialized soldiers and he goes to fight the stronger Syrian army and he leaves his brother Abishai, very competent himself, Abishai to lead the front against the Ammonites. Then he gives this rousing speech. Look at verses 11 and 12. If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage, and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. Again, I think the ESV translation is not as helpful as it could be because the same Hebrew word appears four times in that speech, but the ESV translates it both strong and courageous for some reason. Again, obscures the connection. Uh, The CSB is a little more consistent, and so I think we're going to project it up here The CSB says, if the Arameans are too strong for me, then you will be my help. However, if the Ammonites are too strong for you, I'll come to help you. Be strong. Let us prove ourselves strong. Joab's saying, listen, our enemies are strong. And it's possible that they're going to be too strong for either of us alone. We might need to help each other. But regardless of how strong the Ammonites and the Syrians might appear to be, we ourselves must be strong. Point number two, the brave. But this rousing speech here, this is not just Coach Boone in Remember the Titans or Herb Brooks in Miracle. No, this goes much further and deeper than just coach talk. Look at how Joab points out the reason for them to be strong and the source of their strength. First, the reason. It's for our people and for the cities of our God. This isn't about their own glory. This isn't about their own legacy or their fame or their success like a a high school football team or an Olympic hockey team. We need to be strong for the sake of our people, God's people, for what will happen to the people of God if the Ammonites win. And this is for the sake of the cities of our God. What will happen to the promised land of God if the Ammonites win? We need to be strong because the glory of God is at stake here. And so if that's the reason for their strength, what's the source? 
We'll look at that last line there. May the Lord do what seems good to him. The ultimate source of their strength. It's not just resolve or willpower. No, it's a firm trust in God's sovereignty. That whatever happens, the Lord will do what is good and what is right. He will do what seems good to him. Yeah, there's strategy here, there's tactics here, there's planning here, there's strength and resolve and courage here. But at the end of the day, all of those things are grounded in a firm trust in the sovereign goodness of God that he will do what is good. That's an awesome speech. But it's also, if you've been paying attention in 2 Samuel, a bit of a surprising speech. Not so much because of the content, but because of who's giving it. Right? This is Joab, a bloodthirsty, vindictive, cruel Joab. Man of violence, Joab. This is the same Joab who earlier in the book murders Abner when he pulls him aside to have a little chat with him in private. Uh, that was something that grieved King David so much that he pronounced a curse on Joab in response. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. This is the same Joab who, later in the book, is going to kill David's son Absalom against David's orders. This is the same Joab who's going to stab his own cousin Amasa in the stomach when he goes to greet him with a kiss. This is the same Joab who, because of everything that he did, like David at the end of his life, he tells Solomon, don't let this man die in peace. That Joab, that Joab... Those remarkable words of faith and trust come from that Joab? If I were to go out and I would ask 100 Christians, family feud style, people who are familiar with their Bibles, like which Old Testament character said these words? Be of good courage, let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God, and may the Lord do what seems good to him. I'm guessing most people would have picked Moses or Joshua or David or someone like that. Certainly not Joab. But if you've read the Bible, even if you didn't know that it was Joab who said that, if you've read the Bible, you know that sometimes the most precious truths come from the most unexpected sources. You remember Balaam. Or even the high priest Caiaphas. At least Joab is on the side of God's people. And point number two, the brave. We should think about speeches. Might be nice and might get you amped up, but ultimately, speeches don't win ball games and speeches don't win wars. Uh, Joab and Abishai, they still find themselves in quite the pickle here, right? You're fighting this two-front war against the Ammonites and against the Syrians. And so their trust is clearly in God, right? That the Lord will, see, will do, rather, what seems good to him. But the question remains, what is it that seems good to him? I don't know. And while God doing what is good, that does not always mean physical deliverance for his people. Martyrs throughout church history would agree with that. Here, in this particular situation, it pleases God to save his people. And so point number three is the save. Look at how the narrator makes it so clear, like crystal clear, that this victory isn't about Joab's great strategy. Abishai's bravery, the, the brother's strength, or anything like that. It's completely about God divinely saving his people. 
Verse 13. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians and they fled before them. Like Joab just comes near. And the Syrians are gone. They're fleeing. I mean, if you're the Ammonites, they had big money. They big money for these Syrians and they, they, they didn't even fight. I'm like, do we get a refund? What is this? And then on Abishai's front, right, the other side, the Ammonites, well, they see that the Syrians fled. And so what do they do? They retreat into their city of Rabbah. And like, just like that. Really anticlimactic if you're reading through this. Just like that. This dreaded two-front war is over. And so Joab, look at verse 14, goes back to Jerusalem. But that's meant to be a somewhat ominous line. I want you to remember that line for next week. Because there's unfinished business at Rabbah. They fled into the city. It is a heavily fortified city. The only way the Israelites can take a city like that is by siege. And so King David is going to send Joab back to besiege Rabbah at a later time. In the spring of the year. A spring when... Tragically, everything is going to come crashing down for David. We're getting ahead of ourselves here, right? That's, that's next week. We're not even done with our chapter this week. The Syrians who fled from Joab, they regroup. Hadad-Ezer, how can you forget a name like Hadad-Ezer? Remember him from chapter 8? Hadad-Ezer, he builds this coalition of Syrians now to go back and fight against Israel. This time, verse 17, it's David himself who heads out the battle And while this battle seems to be much more extensive than the earlier one, like there's lots of casualties, we see that again, God saves his people. And the Syrians flee once again. Now you may have noticed this repeated theme throughout this chapter. Fleeing. Lots and lots of fleeing. Israel's enemies all over are fleeing. But then again, that's exactly what God once told them to expect if they were faithful to him. Deuteronomy 28. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. And so the Syrians and the Ammonites and the Ammonites and the Syrians, they're all fleeing for David. The result of all this? Well, verse 19, the kings who previously served Hadad-Ezer, now they defect and they become Israel's subjects. And so that is 2 Samuel chapter 10. The shave, the brave, and the save. Those are the the historical events of the chapter. But now, with that all in mind, let's now think about three pictures that we can see in this chapter. Three pictures that as we understand them and apply them, hopefully are going to teach us, reprove us, correct us, and train us in righteousness. So picture number one is a picture of trust. We see in this chapter, particularly Joab's speech, a picture of what it looks like to trust God. We've already spoken a little bit about the speech itself, but let me point out two more things, two particular aspects of trusting God that we see here. First, I want you to notice that Joab trusts God in the face of great uncertainty. Like at the outset of this battle, 
Joab's got no idea how it's going to turn out, right? Look at the language that he uses. Maybe the Syrians are going to be too strong for me. Maybe the Ammonites are going to be too strong for you. Maybe we'll have a glorious victory. But maybe we'll suffer a big setback here. He doesn't know. And he doesn't pretend to know. But in the face of that great uncertainty, even with all of the things that he does not know, Joab does know this one thing. He does trust this one thing, that sovereign God will do what is good. May the Lord do what seems good to him. Friends, this is true of all of life. But it's especially true, like we especially feel it when we're going through trials and suffering and difficulties. That we don't know how things are going to turn out. Again, always true, but especially felt in trials and suffering. Like we don't know if we're going to be healed. Or if God is going to let that sickness continue. But we don't know if that situation at work is going to be resolved. If we're going to fire tomorrow. We don't know if God is ever going to give us the spouse that we desire or the children that we've prayed for. We don't know if God is ever going to remove that thorn in the flesh that he's given to us. We don't know if God is going to answer that prayer that we've been praying every day for the last year. But see, even in all that uncertainty, in the midst of all of that uncertainty, especially in the midst of all that uncertainty, We as God's people must trust with certainty that we worship a God who is good and who does good. So that we can say with Joab, may the Lord do what seems good to him and trust that whatever the uncertain future holds, it's ultimately going to be what is good. Second, I want you to notice how even with his trust, that God is going to do what's good and right. right? Like he's got a firm trust in that. But Joab doesn't sit back and do nothing. He doesn't just let go and let God, whatever that means. He doesn't abdicate his responsibilities under the guise of trusting God. No, he understands that even with his firm understanding of God's sovereignty, that he's called as the general of God's army to come up with a good plan, to go out and fight valiantly and to be strong for his people. Brothers and sisters, similarly, in the same way, our trust in God should never be a substitute for faithfully doing what he has called us to do. Our trust in God should never be a substitute or even an excuse for faithfully doing what he's called us to do. Rather, in whatever situation God's placed us in, We need to seek to do his will. We need to seek to strive after holiness. We need to extend ourselves to love and serve others like the word has called us to do. At the same time, trusting that the ultimate outcome is in the hands of a sovereign and good God. So picture number one is a a picture of trust. Picture number two is a picture of rejection. A picture of rejection. You remember the parallel between 2 Samuel chapter 9 
in 2 Samuel chapter 10. Both chapters begin with David trying to show kindness, attempting to show chesed. Mephibosheth, chapter 9, he accepts it. Hanan, chapter 10, he rejects it. That, of course, leads to wildly different endings for the two men. Mephibosheth, you are welcome to eat at the king's table always. Hanan, you're going to suffer great loss for your people. Well, if, as we talked about last week, if Mephibosheth is a picture of the sinner who comes to the end of himself and comes to the Lord empty-handed to receive his mercy, then it doesn't take all that much effort to see what that makes Hanan. Hanan is a picture of the one who proudly rejects God's kindness. Now this rejection of God's kindness can take multiple forms, have multiple different manifestations. But we see it in the unbeliever. The unbeliever who just kind of shrugs off the gospel. Because the gospel is a gospel of loving kindness. The gospel is a gospel of steadfast love. It's a gospel of chesed. That God loves sinners like us and he sent his son Jesus to reconcile us to himself. That Jesus suffered the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins so that we can be made right with him. For an unbeliever to hear that good news, to hear that he, by repenting and believing that good news, can be saved. But then to go on with life, acting like nothing happened Friends, that is proverbially shaving the beard and cutting the clothes of the gospel message. That is taking God's kindness that he has shown us in Christ and trampling it underfoot in rejection. You see the tragedy? The real tragedy of 2 Samuel chapter 10, at least from an Ammonite perspective, is that Hanan could have prevented all of it. If Hanan just saw David's kindness for what it was, a kindness for the sake of his father, and he had received it, you see, all would have been well in Ammonite land. And friends, the tragedy for us here today is that some of you are headed to hell because of your unpaid sin, and you can prevent all of that, but you continue to reject the gospel. I say to you, you may have to this point in your life committed the folly of Hanan. You may have proudly rejected God's kindness to you until now. But the simple fact is that it is not too late. It is not too late. Today is the day of salvation. But today is the day to see God's kindness, his chesed, for what it is. Kindness extended to sinners like you for the sake of another. As you can think of, right here's 2 Samuel chapter 9. Here's 2 Samuel chapter 10. Here's Mephibosheth. In humility, accepting the loving kindness. And here's Hanan, in pride, rejecting it. Here, friends, we have a picture of salvation. What God does in saving sinners. And here, friends, we have a sad picture of rejection and the damnation that comes with it. Pray that God would open your eyes today. Those of you who are on this 2 Samuel 10 path, that you might instead find eternal life in the gospel.
But we're not done. We're still considering a picture of rejection here. See, brothers and sisters, those of you who are in Christ, that this rejection of God's kindness doesn't only happen among unbelievers. Even those of us who are Christians, how often have we been guilty of similar offenses, even if they're much more subtle? Where God displays kindness to us. Kindness, ultimately, in the gospel of his son, but in so many more ways, with so many more graces with which he showered us. And we might not outright reject them like Hanan, but our hearts can be so unthankful. Brothers and sisters, we have to see that unthankfulness towards God, in spite of all the kindness that he's shown to us, it's a lot more like Hanan than we ought to be. And picture number two is a picture of rejection. So we've seen a picture of trust, a picture of rejection. Our third picture is a picture of submission. You remember how earlier we looked at the identical words with regards to Mephibosheth and then Hanan, David desiring to show kindness, chesed, and how the identical language in those two scenarios, how that draws our attention to the different responses to that kindness. Well, there's another set of identical words at the end of our chapter. And again, it ought to draw our attention to the two very different responses. First look at verse 15. When the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together. So you've got these Syrians. You've got Hadad, Ezer, and his buddies. When they see that they've been defeated by Israel, what do they do? They double down, they reinforce, and they continue to fight. Now look at verse 19. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadad, Ezer, saw that they had been defeated by Israel, saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. You see that? That's the exact same phrase as in verse 15. But in contrast to Hadad-Ezer and the Syrians, in contrast to them, these other kings submitted. They made peace. They became subject. Friends, that is a picture of submission. We talked about this two weeks ago. But I'll mention it again because the picture is so clear here. This is a picture of Psalm 2. The kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and his anointed. Let us burst apart their bonds and and cast away their cords from us. And some tragically persist in this rejection like Hadadies are here. They double down on their rebellion, their opposition to God. And as a result, Psalm 2, what happens? They're broken with a rod of iron and dashed in pieces like a potter's vessel. See, hey, daddies are... But others, others, these other kings in our chapter, they are warned and they become wise. They submit and they kiss the sun And they discover the truth firsthand that blessed are all those who take refuge in him. 
see, friends, the, the decision, the continued rebellion or humble submission, that decision doesn't belong to Hadadezer and these other kings anymore, right? They're long gone. They're long dead. The, the decision, rather, is it's yours and mine. Will we submit to the Lord Jesus or will we continue in hard-hearted rebellion against him, doubling down like Hadadezer? And picture number three is a picture of submission. It's a picture I pray that all of us would joyfully embrace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for how this story so richly illustrates the gospel of your son, Jesus. Father, we see the tragic rejection of Hadad-Ezer, the tragic persistence in that rejection. Father, we pray that you would soften hearts in this room, that you would replace hearts of stone with hearts of flesh and do what only you can do in saving sinners. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.